Hey guys, welcome back to the Strength Theory Show podcast. Today we have another great guest in Alex Harrison. He is a sports performance consultant, again from Renaissance Periodization. Today we get into a great discussion on strength and power training and also endurance training as Alex was a former Team USA Olympic bobsledder. Uh, and if you go to his Instagram, you'll see some pretty amazing feats of strength and power. But now he has transitioned into endurance training uh, his wife is also a uh, professional endurance athlete, and he focuses a lot of his time on training those athletes. So we wanted to talk to him about the transition for himself from power to endurance and what that looks like, and then also just how to train all of these qualities together. But unfortunately, we had recorded this podcast about a month ago, and we were having some Wi-Fi issues in connection, so he kept fading out. Uh, so if you notice times throughout the podcast where it seems broken up, it's because we lost Alex and tried to re-record and it just kept happening. And then about a month went by and we got him back on to finish the podcast. Uh, so the podcast is actually kind of in four different parts, but it flows together really well uh, as we pick up exactly where we left off. Uh, and the information was just so good throughout that we didn't want to just restart the podcast when we interviewed him again. So uh, go through it. Let us know what you guys like. Uh, we're going to get this technology down, we promise. Make sure to leave a review. It allows more people to get to know the podcast. Let us know any guests that you think would be good for the podcast. Uh, and, and give us a rating as well. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Strength Ratio podcast. This is Zachary Greenwald joined with Kyle Klachenko. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, this guest really epitomizes all of what we're about in terms of aspects of concurrent training. So not just have, uh, training one fitness characteristic, but multiple, whether that's at the same time in a training cycle or over a lifetime, as well as someone who is very well educated and of course applies that education in sports physiology and performance to their training. Uh, this guest has a PhD in sports physiology and performance and like Dr. Mike Isratel and those at Renaissance Periodization, of which this guest is a part of. He got his PhD from ETSU, which is down the road from us in Asheville. Uh, there, uh, uh, this guest has a brick and mortar on-site location. Uh, it's called Accelerate Sport out on the West Coast. And without further ado, I, and I hopefully haven't uh, butchered anything there, we welcome Alex Harrison to the show. Alex, thanks so much for your time. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. I uh, appreciate the generous introduction. <laughs> yeah, the intro is hard, especially when you've uh, done so much with your education and continued ed. I, there's just too much to almost rattle out. It's hard to perhaps tease out what you feel is most important or, or how you would introduce yourself, but uh, you definitely bring a lot to the table. And we first, Alex, were turned on to what you were doing when Kyle pulled me aside at the gym and showed me a video of how tall are you, by the way? How much do you weigh? I'm six one, and back when I was posting most of my Instagram videos, I was two twenty five to two forty. Okay, yeah. So we saw a video of a power snatch. It, I think Alex could have been muscled even uh, at one hundred and twenty kilos. And the very next video was. A box jump with straight legs. With straight legs, meaning that after takeoff to the top of the box with straight legs yeah. at 38. 30, was it 34, I think? I think I've done 36 as my highest. 
So, so what I did right after seeing that video is I just went over to our jerk blocks, Alex, and I just, <laughs> and, and I just, I just kind of stood there for a second to process it. <laughs> so, so obviously, um, uh, you are not just very well educated. You are very well trained. And maybe if you take us back to the beginning, uh, starting when you were advancing that education at ETSU, which is at the same time, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that you got into bobsled for the first time, perhaps you can let us know more about your power career. So I, um, I started my power career uh, in the decathlon in track and field, and I started that back in 2006, 2005, uh, back in high school, and I was, I was not very good at it. I didn't have very good coaches, uh, and it motivated me to uh, become a voracious learner of all things applied exercise science especially as it pertained to strength, power, and speed. Um, so I eventually ended up at East Tennessee State University where I got my PhD. And uh, that's where I met Mike. Uh, we were going to school there at the same time under Dr. Stone. Um, and yeah, I got my PhD in sport physiology and performance and studied almost exclusively strength, power, and speed and some nutrition uh, as it relates to strength, power, speed, uh, and then branched actually later, much later in my PhD program, branched into some of the endurance stuff because I was very singularly focused on speed power stuff. And, and in the field, we know uh, that the, the understand, of course, the field is evolving. It's a relatively new field uh, exercise that is. And uh, Mike and many others in the field are in agreement generally on, say, hypertrophy training. Uh, have you since your time in school and your time spent training your own athletes now that the applied physiology and understanding is about the same? Uh, would you have done things differently with what you know now? Uh, if you can maybe speak to a little bit more of that, I'd be really curious because I, I personally don't know the history or how powers uh, evolved at all in the past, say, five, eight years. I think if anything, there has been more misinformation in the last five to 10 years with social media and uh, the internet um, than there was before. So I think that the fundamentals of creating power has stayed the same. Obviously they've stayed the same throughout time, whether we've known them uh, is another story, but they, the knowledge that we've had in the field has not really evolved to a great extent, like in the last 10, 20 years, like we we've known the people who knew who were in the know in the 1960s and 1970s knew that you needed to be really strong and you, you needed to be really strong relative to your body weight to be powerful. Um, and then you layer in some speed training to really like sort of tap off or top off the, the, the fast end of the force velocity curve. Um, once you're strong, uh, sure. There are all sorts of little nuanced, uh, ways to get more out of your power training the fundamentals haven't changed. You need to squat and you need to probably use the Olympic lifts or something like them to provide overload, uh, for strength and heavily loaded power movements. Um, you mentioned briefly that back in high school, you didn't maybe have the best coaches and obviously that led you down the path that you're on now. And also giving back to, um, cause you train a lot of youth sports, correct? Mm -hmm. yep. Um, what, and you, maybe not have to go too much into this, but what have you felt has been like, or what was uh, the biggest like misconception or lack of training that you didn't receive uh, that you're like, 
makes you really excited to give back to the youth sports now that they're getting? Um, I think there's a huge underemphasis of strength training, period, end of story. The, the high schools have do a disservice to a lot of kids by not emphasizing how to strength train properly, um, especially in females, because, I mean, that's 80% of our clients at Accelerate Sport are high school females because the high school weight room is so uh, so football, basketball, baseball dominated by the, the boys. So we get all the females and we get them to squat and then they get college scholarships. Yeah, we, we it's funny. <laughs> we get them to squat and then they get caught. It's funny because the, 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 the fundamentals uh, are just so non-existent. It's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I train a couple uh, football players here. And it seems, although it may be going away slowly, slowly, there's still that mentality of um, let's make whatever they're doing hurt rather than training them. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, the problem is, I think they're going away from that mentality to let's not train hard either. It's like yeah. they, you can train hard and have it be intelligent at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, I, we we hear stories of that occurring at all levels of professional sport this kind of babying of the athletes or this, this concern, uh, of course, with, uh, you know, multi-million dollar contracts on the line, people get perhaps too uh, uh, sensitive to challenging their athletes. And who knows how much that could make a good athlete great. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. And uh, I just, I wanted to mention really briefly, until I followed your Instagram, actually, I had never realized uh, how strong and powerful bobsled athletes could be. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. strong and powerful. Yeah, so if you, like, really quick, and I know we mentioned it in the beginning, some of your numbers or even maybe some of the numbers that others have, have done that you know that are uh, uh, also obviously very strong and powerful. Yeah, I would say that I'm, I would probably classify myself as average in the world of elite bobsledders. So the, the best bobsledders in the world that you see in the Olympics, I would class, classify myself as uh, average to slightly above average strength and power and um, maybe a, a little bit below average on speed. And my numbers are I squatted 475 all the way down full depth uh, for a triple um, high bar Olympic style. Um, let's see. I hang cleaned from, from the high hip uh, 165 kilos. Uh power correct yeah yeah so yeah hang power clean sorry i don't i don't i don't, I don't catch anything full because i was i was just training for speed yeah. power so i there's no no sense of me dropping under a bar so yeah hang power clean 165 kilos uh hang power snatch 130 kilos um what else bench press 395 uh and that's pause bench press um what else I'm really bad at deadlift. <laughs> I don't. Th I don't think I could even pull 450 off the ground. Ah, interesting. Is is that just uh, because uh, of how your body's built, or just the speci specificity of training that you Probably. have? Absolutely both. Yeah, I ne never deadlifted. Didn't do a whole lot of pulling from the floor uh, because a lot of the training, especially once you get in season is very sport specific, more open joint angles. So spent a lot of time above the knee. Mm -hmm. So Alex, my, my next question for you, I ties into uh, perhaps the education you received and the message that you tried to make clear to your athletes 
whether that's explicit in their program or evident in the fine details of their program. But we do our training a power athlete, and of course, we're going to get into how you uh, have made a leap of energy systems, and you're not uh, training power at the moment. But I, I would just like, because I feel as though power isn't often as spoken about as hypertrophy or like pure strength, pure strength, or, or even just like CrossFit related uh, yeah. abilities. But if you were to say to someone as, as simply as you could, um, how would you train that force velocity curve for an athlete? What might that look like and what might be the core features of that? Uh, first, get strong. Squat, squat one and a half times your body weight at a minimum um, before you even start to focus a lot on maximizing your power by doing power-oriented exercises with higher velocities. Like, sure, if you're in season, go ahead and do some faster movements, but spend the bulk of your time gaining muscle, losing fat, and getting really, really strong. So one and a half times body weight squat is like like a starting to be respectable and for, for male athletes. If you want to be a really competitive male athlete in most sports that have strength and power as a foundation, you need a double to 2.25 times body weight squat before you really get powerful. And after you've laid the foundation for that, would you then train power uh, using different implements throughout the week to, to hit different uh, aspects of that curve? Or do you have any uh, – I know it, it's not – it's a science, right? It's not like it's just how you do it, but um, in terms of the makeup of like how you plan out your, your athletes' programs, how then would you advance them once they have that requisite strength? Yeah, once they're at uh, that requisite strength, then the power that we train in the weight room is usually going to be slower power than the tra the training that they're going to do on the field or on the track or, or what have you. So they are going to get their, their really high-velocity training from actually doing the things that they do in their sport, whether that's sprinting, jumping, throwing a ball. Um, so we're not going to try to mimic that, some of that very top-end force velocity really high velocity stuff in the weight room because you can't throw a baseball in the weight room. You can't sprint in the weight room. Um, so we're, we're going to make sure that they are generally strong and powerful in the positions that their joints are going to experience during the activities of their sport. So for sprinters, we're going to be doing a lot of top end range of motion, uh, Olympic lifts from the mid thigh. I call it the mid thigh. You probably call it from the hip pocket or the power position. We're going to be doing third and quarter squats uh, and doing them like concentrically explosively from pins um, and jump squats with like zero to 80 kilos or something. Very cool. Yeah, I know. It just in, in my own experience, I had, uh, you know, kind of laid this foundation, not uh, intentionally where I had, I played baseball and there was a lot of, uh, unfortunately, learning with good foundations, uh, a lot of volume upon that was built strength. And for a while, my, uh, squatting most specifically, I think that which I'm built best for and also enjoy most. So I, I, I kind of really desire to, to train it. Um, and I was also proficient in the Olympic list as well. Having spent time with technique, uh, had stalled in the squat and had never really trained power. And, 
it's amazing just in having uh, gained a little bit of understanding as for how to do it. And I could have probably have done it better. I went from after probably, I think it was uh, two to three months of training a 2.1 body weight back squat to a 2.4 body weight back squat. Just because I, I had never moved fast in the gym unless just with the lifts alone. Uh, and it was that, that in and of itself made me curious as for how to train power. And I also found it just to be fun. I, I felt athletic and I find that if I'm, uh, moving, say like lots of volume, uh, and it's just a high volume cycle, I might feel a little bit beat down. Uh, if I'm training strength, uh, I might have like a different kind of fatigue, um, perhaps strong, but to not have a sense in either uh, just like a strength only or volume only cycle, uh, a sense of general athleticism, I think for Kyle and I both, uh-huh. just it feels horrible having grown up as field sport athletes. Uh, the fact that you can do well in the gym, but then out of the gym, you feel lazy or not lazy, but uh, kind of clumsy, if you know what I mean. Actually, I just had a, a technical difficulty, but now all is well. And uh, Alex, the last thing that I was saying is in phases where I had only trained for volume, whether that was for increased muscle mass or work capacity, or had only trained for strength, that general feeling of lacking athleticism to where I would feel confident in the gym, but almost question my abilities with like almost activity, sure. daily yep. living at a very yep. minimum, just would feel uh, feel pretty crappy. So um, uh, that, that definitely uh, made me want to explore power training even more. And, and I was just wondering if that is an aspect of power training that you enjoy and also just believe to be uh, important. Yeah. I mean, super important for sports. I mean, if you, if you're feeling that, that sort of heavy, slow, not explosive, not really highly technical or snappy feeling, uh, if you're feeling that from chronic hypertrophy, chronic strength training, uh, with not as not enough, fatigue management or not enough power training incorporated. Yeah. That is a really bad thing for sport. If you, if you get there, uh, you are probably three to six months out of being able to perform at your best. So that's, that's a feeling that most power speed athletes should only really have very early in the off season, assuming that they have like a six month off season. So I took, I took a year off of bobsled and was able to train exclusively for hypertrophy and strength for a while. And yeah, my vertical jump was so bad. I mean, I, I, I remember jumping up and trying to touch something that was like 24 inches up and it was like nearly a max effort, uh, after I'd gained a bunch of weight, I went on a mass phase, did hypertrophy. Um, and I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but there's a whole bunch of fiber type conversion that happens when you do hypertrophy, it slows down your myosin isoforms. So, uh, even if you are training power, your power is going to go down during hypertrophy phases. Yeah. That's, that's like a nightmare scenario for, for athletes. Uh, and, and we often talk about uh, with people on site and even online is uh, we kind of have this sustainable training model that obviously it's tailored to the, the, the specific athlete, but then also keeping in mind for long-term health and longevity. Uh, but even for some of our adult classes, mm-hmm. uh, having in some like some sprints every now and then, some jumps, some throws, yeah. they report like, like, wow, I feel so much better actually like moving my body this way yeah. as always being in the gym. Yep. There's good evidence to show a lot of that stuff helps with bone density in uh, in women over 52. Awesome. So you uh, had also 
uh, attempted, and, and if you can also maybe touch on the timeline of this all, uh, to uh, take your uh, abilities and your practice and, and try to make it to the Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. You were uh, on Team USA and Olympic uh, hopeful. How does one balance, uh, perhaps this was after your time at university, uh, but I think that's quite applaudable to have had the academic endeavors and then to pursue the highest uh, platform of performance. Yeah, it is. It's going to sound incredibly cliche. Um, and because I've heard, I've heard this word used about a million times by every Olympic hopeful and every Olympian ever. Um, but the word sacrifice, it really, I mean, it's cliche for a reason. And I, and I understand why now, because anybody can go get up and train two to four hours a day. Like that's, Lots of people do that for fun. Um, they train for whatever they're training for, and they spend two to four hours a day on it. But the difference in training for training to be the best in the world at something like top eight in the world um, to beat every other person who's doing the same thing, you have to sacrifice a lot of other things in your life. Um, so that might include, obviously, the nutrition side of things being a little bit more regimented than uh, your fellow competitors, but also when your sport is a speed, power, strength sport, you have to sacrifice uh, other activities that you might want to do outside of training, like hiking or skiing or riding your bike with your wife or going for a walk to the mailbox. Um, because <laughs> any added volume um, is going to be converting fiber types to slower myosin isoforms, which is going to take your speed down a little bit. And if you train with lower speeds or you train with lower power, uh, chronically, your adaptations to the speed and strength and power training that you're doing are going to be less effective if the training isn't at the highest intensity possible. So the fatigue from walking to the mailbox is something that would cross my mind. And my mailbox is like 100 feet from my door. <laughs> wow. That is that is pretty cool, actually. <laughs> and, and we often uh, encourage that people, and I, I know you would agree, feel like they are able to run sprints, to run a mile, to uh, squat heavy, to do all of these things. And, and just so our audience doesn't hear that and feel like they have to sacrifice. This. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't have to if you're not training to be the best bobsledder in the world. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, so the context is so, so critical there. So um, was there a time after you had chosen to move on from, from that uh, Olympic pursuit that you maybe even considered, well, before I, I totally jump this spectrum here, maybe I'll, I'll kind of meet it halfway and just get into some bodybuilding and, and <laughs> put, on, put on some hypertrophy. Because uh, what we're excited to, to share with you guys, and of course, I feel Alex, like the audience better knows you, and, and we've learned a lot already, is that you went from the, the power side, leapfrogged, I think everything in the middle, and now your your coaching uh, pursuits and personal athletic endeavors look a whole lot different. Where you're probably not worrying about walking out to the mailbox. And <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Um, I have switched completely to the other side of the uh, physiological spectrum to endurance training. I train for triathlon with my wife Michelle, who is hoping to go pro in triathlon um, and maybe pro in cycling simultaneously. Um, she's she's uh, a blast to train with, but it's been a very humbling experience for me because she got a two year jump start on the big switch from speed to endurance. 
All right, you're good to go. Okay, so I would I uh, I have been training for triathlon with my wife, uh, and she's she's super good at cycling, which is probably my strongest suit in, in triathlon because some of the strength power carries over from bobsledding, um, and then uh, running is is still. Uh, something I'm waiting to do because I broke my foot in my last season as a bobsledder while I was training for the Olympics. Um, so I'm kind of taking it easy on my foot. Uh, and then swimming, I swam in high school and I still can't keep up with my wife uh, when she swims. So it's been, it's been really humbling, but it's been really nice because now that I'm more of a, a generalist, I can, I can walk to the mailbox. I can go on walks with my wife and dogs. I can take a hike. I can go skiing uh, and I can still train in the weight room. Um, and there's much less limitation than when I was trying to be the best in the world at bobsledding. Uh, what has been the biggest uh, differences right from the get-go? Obviously, there's the training, but maybe more of like the psychological things because there is a big difference there. You're, you're on maybe a machine much longer. Uh, you're probably used to training a lot, but now it's for one thing for a long for a long period of time. What's what's kind of been the biggest difference there? The biggest difference is probably the arousal level that you have to bring to training. So in, in bobsledding, uh, when you get under a squat bar and it's going to crush you if you don't stand it up uh, or you have to push sled for five seconds. Um, and if you push 5.02 as opposed to 5.01 for the 50 meter stretch, it it's, can make a world, world of difference. The arousal level that you have to bring to the table is, is like that pinnacle peak most uh, zoned in feeling that you, that you can find, you have to step up to the line with that every single time. And so it can wear on you mentally a bit, which is why a lot of Olympians will take several months or even a year off after the Olympics. Um, whereas in, in endurance training, when you step up to the line for a cycling race, or when you step up to the line for a triathlon, the first five seconds aren't critical. It's like, you can take a deep breath, you can settle into the pace. And the, the same thing in the training, it's, it's not, there's never any mission critical moments in endurance training. And I'm sure I just offended a whole bunch of endurance athletes, but compared to the speed power world, there's way fewer mission critical moments. Yeah. And not to dive too far back into uh, power, but what tactics or, or perhaps visualization tools would you use to harness that type of arousal or, or perhaps even just uh, sports supplements, uh, legal sports elements would you use to harness that because uh, that is such a notable difference between the two sides of the spectrum in fact that's why we're so intrigued they are on such, uh, opposing sides of the energetic spectrum yeah so interestingly the supplementation is similar in some ways especially with regard to the one supplement used for mental arousal which is caffeine um, because I use a similar dose when I train for endurance, but for a very different reason. Uh, so three to six uh, milligrams per kilo of body weight is a, is a safe and well-tested dose for performance enhancement in uh, strength power sports. So for me, that's 300 to 600 milligrams, um, but that same dose is also fairly well evidenced to be performance enhancing in endurance training um, because of the, in part, uh, the cognitive benefit, but also because of the free fatty acid liberation um, that, that happens. And when you've transitioned, have you found, perhaps to your surprise, that you've been able, despite 
the arousal differences needed for uh, power relative to endurance that you've settled into it nicely, whether it's just come at a good time in your career, though you've said that you want to make it professionally. So it's not like this is just a hobby. Uh, it sounds like you must enjoy it if, if you've uh, taken to it with such uh, tenacity. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, the, the crossover or the transfer of being strong and powerful is really beneficial on the bike uh, in, in triathlon or in cycling racing, which I've been doing a fair amount of. Uh, I may have misspoken. I, I'm not trying to go professional in endurance sports. I am enjoying endurance sports to the fullest because I, I've been missing them for the last decade. Um, but my wife is trying to go pro. Um, so I take her training, which I write very seriously. Uh, and I take my training very casually, um, which is, which is really nice, a nice reprieve from a decade of, of really focused work. Um, but the strength power carryover into endurance sports is huge on bike. Um, because just because of the mechanics and cycling. Yeah, I know I've seen, uh, at least to the best of my knowledge, uh, from a lot of the meta-analyses and studies that many times the, I think it's, they usually just measure the VO2 max, is actually increased with some sort of concurrent training mm -hmm. uh, endurance as opposed to, as we talked about a little bit, it, it's, uh, the strength can be decreased with that added fatigue uh, to some extent, but in mm -hmm. endurance it actually amplifies it. Yep. And it can certainly, even if it doesn't change the O2 max for the better, it can absolutely, it does absolutely improve endurance performance because of changes in economy and power. Yeah. Um, I, I also think something interesting for you to talk about with, with in terms of fatigue management, uh, and before you said how, you know, walking to the uh, mailbox might affect uh, uh, the gym performance. How has, how have you felt uh, physically with the fatigue maybe being a little bit higher because in endurance sports it can accumulate uh, a little bit differently. I would say initially I was uh, very fatigued and I felt flat. Uh, I use the term flat to mean um, not springy, not explosive, weak. Um, I felt very flat initially. I felt uh, like I didn't have any spring in my step. Um, but I noticed probably within two weeks that walking up the stairs was a much more enjoyable experience uh, with with a little bit of uh, fitness in in my life because um, I'm not I'm not kidding when I say I had not run I had not run more than 800 meters in eight years um, like since since I was a decathlete in college so I guess it's been six years um, so I had very specifically intentionally restricted myself um, so just the inclusion of two to three days a week of semi-intense, high-intensity intervals and, and, and slow, long, uh, slow-distance cardio made an enormous immediate difference in like my ability to express what strength and power I was still holding on to from my previous career. I felt like a million bucks. Like it was, it was awesome. And it still feels awesome. That's, that's really cool. And I've, I, I think that touches back to that just – Beyond even just wellness, I think that that's probably most important is that that sense of being athletic in more ways than one uh, is just so important, like you said, especially for athletes. Um, one uh, question I have is that, and I think a lot of our athletes, because they are not as uh, focused on especially longer endurance events, uh, our, our athletes take uh, note and enjoyment in 
the skill involved in, say, uh, weightlifting or even in just performing a really good squat. They, they fall in love with the uh, teaching of it and the technique of it. Uh, but I do think that a lot of them perhaps uh, may not realize the technique involved in, say, running economy or cycling or swimming. Uh, have you found that uh, the technique or skill acquisition in one versus the other is at all different? Are there any similarities? Um, or is it yeah. just perhaps uh, someone who uh, is, is patient and willing to put in the time will reap the benefits of both equally? I, I think that in, um, in triathlon, there are a plethora of skills that have to be developed to be successful at a high level. Um, luckily, if you can swim, anybody can learn how to jog and that's basically a function of fitness and literally anybody can be slapped on a bike and start pedaling. So the, the skill of actually riding the bike uh, is really limited, but I would call it tactics as far as riding around people and around traffic uh, safely is where it can be. Uh, there, there can be an opportunity for learning. Swimming, however, is where the real opportunity for skill acquisition lies in triathlon uh, because it's so highly technical uh, and there can often be like range of motion limitations that make skill learning even more challenging um, and also rewarding too because uh, you can feel you can feel the changes in your economy when you swim like remarkably faster with less effort. So it can be really rewarding to learn those skills, uh, especially at, I was a high school swimmer. I, I did, I was bad at swimming in high school, but I, I did swim in high school. So I come from a place where I thought I knew how to swim and still having a coach show me certain things that just make me glide through the water better have been, it's been a really rewarding thing to, to learn outside of bobsled. But certainly in, in the weight room too, we've seen it um, countless times at Accelerate, but yeah, people feel people feel empowered when they do something well and they know that they've done it well because all of a sudden they're moving a heavier weight easier than they moved a lighter weight a week ago and through a more full range of motion. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's cooler to see than perhaps the weight on the bar coming up, especially for um, either a beginner or perhaps someone who's been training for a while but hasn't quite had the foundation. Uh, mm -hmm. I had a question about uh, swimming uh, economy. Uh, so you guys have quite a nice brick-and-mortar uh, location, and you do uh, your coaching through RP in the triathlon realm. Uh, how would someone uh, from a distance or perhaps those who are on site with you develop their uh, swimming technique? It, it seems to be uh, an inherent limitation, you have to have a pool and it's videoing would be challenging. So I'm, I'm just curious how sure. we think about that uh, skill acquisition, either from afar or if getting to a pool might not be a, the most accessible thing year round. One of the first questions I ask any new triathlete when they come to us and say that I want to train for triathlon, I want you to be my coach. I ask, do you have a swim coach? Because you have to have somebody's eyes on you maybe even hands on your limbs while you're swimming, while you're in the pool, showing you the motions that you're supposed to be making. Um, you can do video review, but you still need a partner to film you. Or you can set up a tripod at the end of your lane and film head on or even off to the side and film from the side. And a good coach can glean uh, details about your swim stroke 
uh, from those various angles. And I have a guy that I refer everybody to for video review for swimming um, because he he made the world of difference uh, in both Michelle and my strokes. Um, it's not something that I do because I just I, I wouldn't want to do a disservice to people. But yeah, the swimming is the one area where you got to have a coach, like a, t- a skill coach, that and Olympic weightlifting. If you don't have a skill coach in those two things, it's going to be a struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was hoping to maybe go into ma- ha- a little bit more of the training. And you mentioned this uh, brief- briefly before with some interval work and stuff, but making this transition, how are you approaching uh, your training from the very beginning? I don't know how far exactly into it you are, but how did you start to like, because obviously you've been training for a long time. You may want to be doing a little bit more than you should for your current uh, level of ability and endurance. Uh, how did you start that transition? Uh, and then also you talked about the importance of strength for power training. Uh, what would be an equivalent uh, for endurance training there? Hmm. I would say that strength also forms a foundation for endurance training too. I would just classify that strength. It should be, it should be called relative strength, meaning the strength relative to one's body weight. Um, it forms a similar foundation for endurance performance as it does for power. Um, and I think that a lot of people underestimate that. Um, because I, I came from a background, like I said, we've talked about that. I, I had zero, I had an intentionally low cardiovascular fitness. Uh, and I'm, I'm outperforming a lot of folks, um, at, at the recreational level in endurance, what you would classify as endurance activities, one hour type activities. I'm, I'm outperforming them simply because my strength can carry me through and it, it makes the ceiling that I can reach, uh, in, in endurance performance a lot higher. Yeah. As far, as far as the training for endurance that I actually do and I, and that I would recommend for, for other people, to be honest, more is almost always better if you can handle it orthopedically. So if you can avoid injury, if you don't have dinged up knees and ankles and hips uh, and you're not getting injured, more endurance training will almost always make you better at endurance. So when I say endurance, I mean events lasting longer than 20 minutes and not not including heavy loads like you might find in CrossFit. So if, you're a, if your idea of endurance is like a 10 to 20 minute AMRAP, that that more training isn't always going to make you better at that. You might. Hey guys, we are back with Alex Harrison today, uh, picking up from where we left off uh, when we previously tried to record the episode. Alex was just talking about uh, the importance of relative strength for endurance. So we're just going to let him continue with that thought process and try to edit everything together. And um, but yeah, Alex, if you want to just continue with the importance of relative strength for endurance, uh, the, that came up because I'd asked the question uh, of what is a similar importance uh, strength for power is obviously uh, really important. And if you can compare that to endurance and you had mentioned relative strength. So if you just want to pick up wherever you feel best. Yeah. So uh, relative strength is uh, really foundational for uh, pretty much any type of endurance performance, whether it's like swimming running, cycling, rowing. And the reason it's so foundational is because each of those movements is uh, a repetitive, continuous motion of propelling your own body mass forward in the direction that you're going. And if your body mass is less relative to your maximum amount of strength, then uh, each 
movement, whether it's an arm stroke in the pool, a foot strike on land, or a pedal stroke on the bike, each movement is going to be uh, a smaller proportion of your maximum strength reserve in order to provide the same acceleration for your body mass. Um, so basically, I, the way that I've always explained it to athletes is, if you, if, if you come to me and you squat one times your body weight and you run uh, a six minute mile, if we can just increase your squat to like 1.2 times your body weight, um, your ground contact times are gonna be so much faster that without any increase in aerobic capacity, you may see improvements to like 545, 540, um, just by getting stronger relative to your body mass. Now, is there is what is kind of the point of diminishing returns there, or, or is there one for endurance athletes? It totally depends on the sport. So, uh, for a marathoner, probably the point of diminishing returns would be like one and a half times body weight squat. If you if you can squat one and a half times your body weight full depth, you have like pretty much maximized all of the benefits in marathon performance that you're going to get through strength. For somebody like a miler, uh, it might be more closer to a, like a double body weight squat. Um, and then for cyclists, um, relative strength matters a little bit less, especially on flat ground, um, because um, in cycling, you're not working against gravity uh, as you propel yourself across the ground because you can serve your momentum without having to produce vertical forces. Um, so in, in cycling, those numbers might be even higher. Like you could get up to like a two to 2.25 squat about times body weight squat and and continue to see improvement in cycling performance with the runners you, you mentioned uh one and a half times body weight and i guess in a perfect scenario if you were to have built someone from when they were young and they'd have a full depth squat uh that would be awesome but what about someone who's coming from running and they <laughs> some adaptations where they have very stiff ankles sure. or not mobility would you still try to get them to full depth or just what what's comfortable there how would you approach a situation like that it really depends if their primary focus uh is running uh or if, if, if running is their solitary focus and like if they if they're like i run a 240 marathon and i really want to run a 220 marathon um chances are the the benefit of increasing their squat depth is going to come with a trade-off of indiscriminate hypertrophy meaning more distal mm -hmm. quadricep mass um, that's not going to be productive for marathon training. So in reality, we do a lot of partial squatting for athletes whose focus is singularly endurance performance. But when, you're, when your focus is a combination of body composition improvement, uh, general life fitness, and endurance performance, then yeah, we will work to increase squat range of motion for sure. So you mentioned the distal uh, hypertrophy that can come potentially with uh, deeper ranges of motion in a squat mm -hmm. is that the new hypertrophy uh, would change that gait potentially or is there the matter of having more hypertrophy than would perhaps be needed once a runner is proficient and doesn't really care to improve their strength training if that makes sense yeah it, it would change mechanics potentially uh, if it got pretty egregious but the biggest thing is physiological cost. So when you're running, you have to fuel your muscle with oxygen and the more muscle you have, the more oxygen it's going to cost. And for longer events, the more carbs it's going to cost. So if you're, if you're carrying an extra pound or two of muscle, especially non-productive muscle, like distal mass, that's not going to help you produce high, high forces quickly at open joint angles that are experienced in running. Um, 
yeah, the physiological trade-off is is far in favor of not doing the deeper squats. Gotcha. But it seems that there is this balance for someone who does train both concurrently that having the hypertrophy to at least lay the foundation for perhaps what is a 1.5 body weight squat or, or two. Uh, or, or yeah. two. Yeah. There is this kind of balance between uh, improved ground reaction forces that you get with that muscle mass and perhaps uh, altering the mechanics or, or making it less efficient to run due to having more muscle mass. In that sense, is it that from improved ground reaction forces that come with a stronger squat is that you just have uh, less impulse on the joints and throughout the chain? Or is it that when you mentioned like the improvement that you could see in your running, is it that the running becomes less stressful because you have less impulse? Or is that is it that the ground reaction force is higher so you have a more stronger stride, if that makes sense? Yeah, basically the the thing that being stronger affects the most is the ground contact time. So if you are stronger, then uh, you can recruit higher forces more quickly, which reduces the ground contact time, uh, which will actually, that will, that means you will have higher forces in your joints and in your muscles and on the ground. And that's a good thing because it gets you on and off the ground more quickly. Um, so technically speaking, um, the impulse would technically be the same because impulse is force times time. So the impulse would be the same. It would just be the same impulse uh, executed on the ground in a shorter amount of time with higher forces and higher rate of force development. Uh, okay. A, a good, actually, a good, like, uh, 101 physics reminder. Um, so, no, that's that's really helpful. Do you have anything to say? I think we... Alex, did we lose you? All right, we're, we're back. Okay. Uh, you went out for a second. Yeah, we had a brief cut out there. <laughs> um, we'll just keep rolling on then. Cool. Uh, I guess my next question would be, and this wouldn't typically be uh, for a pure endurance athlete like a marathoner, uh, but with someone who has a history of strength training or even a history of endurance is coming to strength training, more of that concurrent plan, how do you go about uh, balancing uh, maybe like high-intensity interval training versus low-intensity uh, uh, training? Because uh, obviously, a lot of the stuff you see in the media uh, or, or just around kind of favors one or the other. Uh, obviously, there has to be, uh, there would, or for best training, it'd probably be a balance of the two. Would it be better for someone from strength training to spend more time in the low intensity because they have all of that uh, muscle mass and, and vice versa for the endurance athlete? Um, yeah, so how would you go about balancing that or what kind of things would you look at? I would say a general rule of thumb would be 75 to 80% of the endurance training um, in a well-balanced endurance and strength training program for the purpose of endurance performance enhancement in a strength trained individual would be like 75 to 80% uh, uh, easy, long, slow distance type training, aerobic. Um, 20 to 25% could be higher intensity stuff. That being said, we live in the real world where people have real jobs. Um, and so a lot of the programs that I write are they favor the high intensity side of things a little bit more, maybe 50, 50, or, or for the folks who say, I, I only want to train two days a week for endurance and I'm going to continue training three or four days a week for strength. Then they might have 70% high intensity stuff and 30% aerobic because you do get the, you know, the biggest aerobic training benefits from doing higher intensity stuff. Um, but 
if you really want to be the best aerobic athlete that you can be, then you should add more volume of long, slow distance stuff. And, and um, I had this conversation with a couple people. Is it because the longer volume is more closely related to the distance that you might do in endurance or distance and time that you might do in, in endurance events um, versus uh, just the adaptation and adaptations that are specific to what come through low intensity? It, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So yes, you absolutely have to train with specificity uh, for your event, but also um, it's the cost of doing long, slow distance is less than the the mm. recovery and adaptation cost of doing high intensity training. So you can you can do if you if you needed to train ten hours a week for to be a great marathoner, and you did like eight hours of that with high intensity stuff, you'd be blown up and you wouldn't recover well. But you could potentially add another 10 hours and do 20 hours a week of, of training and cut back the high intensity stuff to four hours a week mm-hmm. uh, and have this massive volume of training with less fatigue. And, and that's the value of long, slow distance stuff is you can get more total adaptations with less total fatigue. Mm-hmm. So if you have your high intensity, you said that produces the greatest aerobic adaptation. Am I quoting that correctly? Yep. yep. Yet you have longer slower which favors specificity of an endurance event and it also favors uh, perhaps a low fatiguing out of volume uh can you speak to perhaps um what those aerobic adaptations are that are happening with high intensity that you're not getting from low intensity and why that's significant for the potential cost of recovery yeah for sure so the high intensity stuff is going to push vo2 max higher by um, training your heart to increase preload and uh, increase stroke volume as a result so you're increasing cardiac output which increases vo2 max that's like the number one way to increase your vo2 max um, that is not what the adaptation that occurs with long slow distance training you start to you get more oxygen extraction capabilities at the tissues with long, slow distance training, but that doesn't make up, uh, when we look at the, the factors that predict VO2 max, oxygen extraction at the tissues uh, is, is not the, the biggest te- tell of what somebody's VO2 max is gonna be. It's how much blood can they pump out, um, assuming that their blood is getting fully oxygenated at the lungs, which in a normal healthy person, it does. And I was gonna ask uh, if, you, if you might, provide for the audience a definition of VO2 max, but you just uh, did it there at the, at the end. Oh, uh, great. That, that's, that, that works nicely. Um, uh, I was just, oh gosh, oh yes. Um, at, for your high intensity sessions that you write for your athletes, mm-hmm. uh, a, you know, a marathoner, mm-hmm. uh, what is your approach to writing those intensity sessions? Of course, I would imagine you have the time per hard session relative to like the energy system that you want to train as like something that's strongly being considered, but how do you balance total work done uh, and making sure that they get a good amount of high intensity in, but not doing too much? Is it relative to when speeds start dropping off? You kind of just have found something that you like and, and has worked for a lot of people. What's your approach when writing those, those either run sessions or I don't know if you do any interval type stuff for, for those endurance athletes as well. For sure, yeah. So when I say high intensity training, it, it usually is intervals, either on a treadmill or on a track. 
Um, most of the athletes that I coach are runners um, or triathletes, and a lot of their high-intensity stuff comes through running. Um, well, they do a lot on swimming too, but uh, let's talk running. So um, when I write a, uh, an interval training session for the track, uh, the goal is to get as much, uh, is to progress them to as much uh, volume of high intensity work as they can recover from and fit into their lifestyle. So let's talk about an athlete who, who is going to be choosing to fit as much high intensity work into their lifestyle as they can, as they can recover from. So lifestyle is not the limiting factor here. So we, the goal is over the course of a four to six week block to push the volume of high intensity work, um, the volume of work that's like 10 to 20% above lactate threshold, um, as high as possible. And the way that we do that is have them running repeats that last between one and four minutes with a partial recovery. Uh, and sometimes with um, like breaks in the middle of the workout that allows a more complete recovery so that the cumulative fatigue of the, of the intervals doesn't, doesn't wear on them before their uh, ability to adapt to the aerobic stimulus is gone. So for, for example, running something like, three sets of four by 600, um, where the 600s might last uh, two minutes and 30 seconds for an athlete, and then they take a minute rest. Um, so it's like a two to one work to rest ratio. Um, that, that would be an example of a, of a high intensity interval session. That's, that's for a runner who's doing an endurance race. Now, if somebody's doing like CrossFit per se, I, the high intensity intervals are gonna be shorter because that's more specific to what they do. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And when these athletes are, are as marathoners are being asked to kick up the intensity, well, that comes with a big change in the cadence of their run, I would imagine. And mm -hmm. I don't know if when I think of running mechanics, I sometimes, just because it's not my specialty, think of sprint mechanics and what I would consider like non-sprint mechanics. Um mm -hmm running so if you can speak to perhaps potential like coaching around the running involved for the mechanics behind a 600 repeat and the mechanics yeah. for a longer effort i could see that being challenging but also necessary for an athlete who really wants to excel yeah i think that potentially a mistake that i see a lot of recreational runners make is um trying to get too close to sprint mechanics uh in things in intervals that are too long to withstand sprint mechanics. So 600s are probably too long for anybody but elite folks to be doing much knee lifting um, and like really actively striking the ground like a sprinter would. Um, so the only time I would hope to see sprint mechanics where you're lifting your knees, um, striking down with a, a pretensed foot, um, good dorsiflexion, all that, the only time I would really harp on that would be if, if we're going shorter than 200 meters per repeat for most folks. Um, so they, they should be using the same mechanics that they'd run their 5k or their 10k or their marathon during those 600 repeats. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I was just, I was going to uh, bring up really quick when you gave the example of uh, the running intervals, how might you uh, progress that each week uh, by a certain uh, total like volume percentage 
uh, and then intensity. Like, how much intensity? Yeah, and, and intensity percentage. Um, and then how would you maybe progress that from like block to block? So you might have like a four week build up there, and then some sort of taper deload. Uh, would mm-hmm. you do a very similar setup? Just have it be a faster, a little bit longer. What might something like that look like? So to progress within a session um, over the course of a block, I would I would probably be looking to add a rep or a set. Um, and, and those changes could be in the 10 to 20 to even by the end of the block, 30% uh, change in terms of magnitude, um, mm-hmm. of magnitude of volume. So the changes that happen in intensity are going to be much smaller over the course of a block because the, the whole purpose of VO2 max of interval training of high intensity training is to improve your VO2 max. And if you train at or near your VO2 max, you're going to be improving your VO2 max. So the, the goal is to do as much of that training as you can recover from, not to make the training supra maximal, because you'll end up having to short your volume if you go too hard, and it won't be as stimulative for VO2 max improvement, especially um, in a specific way to the running event that they're doing. Um, so I, I might increase the first week. They might just do one more 600 uh, for one of the sets. The next week they might do one more 600 for the second set. Uh, and then by the, the fourth week, they might be doing four sets of four 600s, um, something like that. And uh, actually a good follow-up question I just thought of is you mentioned uh, improve your VO2 max, you have to spend time there. And I feel things uh, something that's been said in the fitness industry, uh, maybe more on CrossFit now, is that, oh, well, you can only uh, increase your VO2 max to so much percentage, but it's really about uh, improving the, the amount of time you can stay right below that threshold or right below when that would occur. Uh, can For you maybe, sure. yeah, can you maybe the difference between those two things are? That actually leads me to uh, answer the other question um, previously, which was how do you progress block to block? And my answer was going to be uh, I normally don't do two VO2 max blocks back to back because you can sort of, you're not going to max out your lifelong potential for VO2 max in one block, but the rate of return is diminished by six weeks. So I'm going to start focusing on exactly what you mentioned, which is lactate threshold stuff or race modeling perhaps. But like we got the physiological adaptations from our VO2 max block in that four to six week block. And we're going to move on, maybe stay in touch with VO2 max work by doing one set of four by 600, um, once a week tops just to sort of as maintenance work for VO2 max uh, while we focus on lactate threshold or, or race modeling, that sort of thing. And there wouldn't be a testing phase to determine that that happened. Are they actually maxing out their signal at the end of that time and before that time? Or is it just that when you look at their times and, and if they're consistent and it's challenging based on their more subjective measures, then you know yeah. be hard to yeah i don't i never and and almost never test outside of a race Uh, and then just just for the audience more what would an example be of some of that race modeling modeling or uh uh, competition based type stuff be for the lactate threshold okay so uh lactate threshold work would be basically running it at um gosh how do you describe it (laughs) <laughs> running at that running at that pace that you can run at uh, for two to four miles uh, and and get a word out um, 
but you really wouldn't want to push much farther than that because it would start to become like where you're going into the where you're having to flip the switch and, and really ask your body for everything it has um if you if you were to go any farther than four miles so that that's how i would um target lactate threshold but the, the race the race modeling stuff is obviously race dependent so we're going to be running we're going to be practicing the skill of running the pace that you think you're going to run your race at so for experienced runners uh, or experienced triathletes, we know like within a minute or so uh, of what pace they're going to run uh, on race day, unless like catastrophe strikes or unless they just compete out of their head. Um, but for recreational athletes, it's a bit more of a guessing game, to be honest, because I mean, if you have made improvements in your running economy, you've lost weight or you've made improvements in your strength and you've been doing VO2 max training, you might drop four minutes in your 5k time in like four weeks. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to take a wild guess um, and go practice running the pace that you anticipate or hope to run your race at. So have you noticed, this just came to mind as I've reflected on our time and I'm working both sides of the concurrent training model or just simply more towards power and strength and more towards endurance with, with which you've covered quite nicely, perhaps leapfrogging that, that middle range of what you might just practically call like bodybuilding or maybe even CrossFit, uh, having mm-hmm. from power to endurance. Have you noticed in your time uh, working with athletes in the power <clears throat> and in the endurance world that their uh, psychology uh, or say like training um, consistencies are in line in that the people who are involved with power and strength training, they're used to really doing kind of about the same work and really enjoying the process. They have to, of course, love it. And they're, they're really just putting in a lot of the same repetitions to perhaps add however much weight to the bar or improve in like uh, a sprint by however many seconds. Whereas the endurance athlete, it's while it's a slower pace, a longer time commitment, psychologically it involves a lot of the same repetitive uh, daily tasks. Have you noticed that there's a difference in working with those two clientele or are they similar experiences and similar type of kind of uh, personalities that lead people to both or just different sports? I would say endurance athletes tend to be more masochistic. <laughs> so they they almost love the pain more than I think a power athlete does. Uh, and that's not to say that a power athlete isn't isn't going to be willing to really flip the switch in training and just put the hammer down when they're supposed to. Um, but I would say that the endurance athletes tend to be, and I'm going to offend some people here, tend to be tougher. And I'm not sure if it's tougher because they have lower self-esteem and they want to, and they're afraid of failure more. Um, or, or if it's, uh, or if it's, they really do enjoy the pain. I'm not sure, but endurance athletes, when you put them in the weight room, will often like, and part of it's because they have more endurance that they'll, they'll do too much with too little rest and, and just be so gung ho that they can hurt themselves in the weight room. And, um, whereas, well, strength, strength and power athletes will sometimes be too gung ho for their, uh, for their own britches when they get in the endurance realm, because they'll take off too fast. And, um, yeah, it really, it really depends. I've seen, I've seen a really wide range because a lot of, a lot of the recreational folks who train, who train for both, um, they exhibit a lot of the, like a lot from both groups of people. Yeah, it's really like uh, the strength training 
if they're enduring pain, it's for maybe a minute at a time where endurance yeah. athletes, it's like could be an hour that they're sitting with something that is really uncomfortable. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, I had uh, just wanted to go back to a little bit of the, more of the training questions. We were giving a lot of those examples for endurance or for running specifically running endurance. Um, and it's maybe more, uh, or it is a little bit more simple to write out uh, some of these splits and times and progressions. How would you approach something like CrossFit that you mentioned? Would you uh, build up a lot of these uh, physiological adaptations through single modality and then have them do more of sport-specific work? Or would you incorporate a lot of these interval-type training uh, through their CrossFit uh, uh, workouts, uh, et cetera, um, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would absolutely incorporate their CrossFit-specific movements. Um, in their in their VO2 max training because there is something to be said and there's a lot to be said for specificity of movement um, mm. and you can you can be a great runner and really suck on the bike and you can be a great swimmer and really suck at running you can be probably pretty darn good at rowing and like really not very good at running now that said the recoverability like your cardiovascular capacity the just when looking, when isolating cardiovascular capacity, if you get really fit in the pool and you've been doing some running and you've been doing some cycling and you've been doing some rowing, um, let's say you just, but you hammered VO2 max for months and months uh, and lactate threshold in the pool and you've just been blasting your cardiovascular system, you'll notice for sure that you recover faster from the running, rowing, cycling efforts mm -hmm. uh, than, than you would had you not been doing that cardiovascular work in the pool. So there, there's definitely carryover, but you will be, uh, a sorry, a sorry person if you don't get in touch with the stuff that you're going to see in competition. And would their uh, balance of maybe that low intensity to high intensity be more of like that 50 to you, or would that be more dependent on the time of the season that they might be in? That is a really good question too. I think I think to be honest, if you were going to really try to maximize CrossFit performance, there has to be. Um, there has to be a high volume of lower intensity stuff um, to really safely build the aerobic capacity um, without just accumulating insane amounts of fatigue. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you like, for example, wanted to do high intensity interval training on the bike, the rower uh, running, and if you're a high level competitor and you're going to see swimming in your competitions, you got those four things to worry about and you want to do high intensity interval training once a week for each of those, you would be so blown up yeah. uh, and you, you wouldn't be recovering adequately from your strength training. Uh, if you, if you did that. Yeah. And even the, I mean, many people will combine the strength obviously in, in a Metcon and do intervals with a Metcon and that could add even more fatigue because for sure having all that contraction volume with some really challenging weights. Oh, yeah, sure. I found with our crossfitters that like a needs analysis is, is of utmost importance and even the craft at all like it, if you just layer on the high intensity which we, we feel a lot of people in the crossfit world like that that is it's because of what the sport was made it's, from it's yeah. The, yeah, yeah for sure yeah sports made from it and also i think a lot a lot of people when you get into crossfit it might be their first time on like a training program so they may have a hard harder time surrendering uh, some of that high intensity for lower intensity bouts but like you said, when you have so many training variables, as well as perhaps like a dedicated strength program running concurrently, we've seen it's just like people just come to us totally burnt out, like Metcon every day, 
Yeah, I can't even imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. and then then if you you ask them to perhaps run a five k, they're like, no way. And and you look at the games, and you're like, okay, well, that's kind of how it's programmed. They they actually have to be able to do anything. Um, Yeah, Alex, would you want to do a marathon row? (laughs) Oh my word! Uh, If somebody had an IV of carbs for me, yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. So um, you know. We, we've had you on uh, for a long time, and, and I just uh, want to be respectful of your time. And kind of as we, like, I think we've really uh, been able to ask yeah, between a, the two, a, a lot yeah. between the two. Would you mind, because there has been some time in which we've spoken, and there's also been time in which you've had some races, uh, right? You've made this transition from power to endurance. Has anything changed, even in the short time that we've spoken, that you've just been putting in races and putting in training time where you're either gaining confirmation that this is something that you want to keep up with. That is more endurance training. Uh, mm-hmm. where, where has this, uh, journey taken you? You know, uh, the journey has, has taken me to track cycling recently, which, uh, is definitely more on the power, speed, strength kind of, uh, side of things. Um, and the other thing that I think I've, I've learned, uh, not, not saying that I'm going to go into track cycling as, as like a, a very competitive endeavor, but it, it's something that suits my genetics well. So I'll probably play with it. But the other thing that I've really learned as a strength athlete coming, uh, coming into endurance is, is that number one, my muscle maintenance has been better than I expected. Meaning my, like my muscle retention, even though I've lost weight has been pretty good. And my body composition didn't go all to heck like I thought it might. And number two, um, I need more long, slow distance stuff to be able to recover from the high intensity bouts that happen in bike racing um, because I just get wrecked. Mm. I I guess my my peak power output is is really high, so I'm able to recruit a lot of oxygen consumption really fast. Um, Like with sprints, for example, if you're a power lifter or weight lifter and you decide to do sprints, you probably find that you can gas yourself way faster than an than an endurance athlete. Yeah. Uh, And the long, the the more long, slow distance riding I do, uh, the more I see improvement in in a big way. Um, uh, Have you ever been on an assault bike, Alex? I I have, but not for the purpose of using it like an assault bike. I used it as a warm up one time. Uh, I, I, was, I was just going to ask because um, uh, how how strong you were, and then of course now you're going to cycling. Uh, yeah. If you've ever done a really hard workout, and then it'd be interesting to see like what your 50 cal for time would be. I'd imagine it'd be like crazy oh, fast. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I could probably calculate that based on some of my power power data. Do they have a watt reading on the on the they, assault they bike? They yeah. do, but unfortunately, it maxes out at uh, one thousand nine hundred ninety nine, and um, uh, okay. I, I can reach that pretty easily for a sprint. So I'd imagine you'd be way over that. Yeah, yep. I think I could probably hit that on a on a bike without the arm things. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, um, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I think the last question uh, that I that I have uh, for you, Alex, is concerning uh, low intensity when. When you uh, and and we've had uh, one of our consultants say, you know, for some of the recovery purposes that you're looking for, um, and and just this might have been a big generalization, he recommended getting in at least 30 minutes. And he he said 20 minutes for recovery, 30 minutes for some sort of adaptation. And and, And ultimately, he was just saying, like, you know, as for recovery purposes, like the longer you can stretch it out, 
perhaps the better uh, as long as it I, I could see running be uh, being different in that you're just striking the ground more and more with mm-hmm. the fatiguing but can you speak more to like that that topic um how long is it that longer is better um how do you approach that and how has you said that's impacted uh, your your performance a lot uh and would love to know more about the details of that low intensity battle yeah you know so i i guess i was referring to um i recover better within a session for example a bike race that has uh numerous accelerations and the hills and that sort of thing over a two-hour period i recover within that two-hour period better having done lots of long slow distance previously um as far as using long slow distance training as a recovery modality in itself um i would i don't have any data and i don't unfortunately i don't have any I haven't read the the literature on that topic specifically, but I would, if I had to make a guess, I would say cutting it off at like 60 to 75 minutes would probably be a great idea for most folks, unless they're really, really fit. Cool. Well, I, but I do think that answers, yeah, the, I think the significance of it being twofold, that intra-session recovery and also fatigue management and how it can help intra-session as well. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting, Alex, if you ever decided to go back to um, strength power uh, like uh, on its own, how much more volume you could potentially do, considering yeah, probably a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, I I may end up back in the weight room here. I haven't. I actually have not lifted since January. I haven't touched a weight oh, since man. January. Is that, um, does that feel which weird? feels? Yeah, it feels very foreign. Uh, well, and, and now it feels foreign. Like I picked up a barbell, like I to to move it when we were moving my business around, um, and I ha- I had to move a barbell. Um, and oh my gosh, it felt heavy. Um, I, I'm used to feeling like a 45 pound barbell. If I put it on my back, it, it doesn't feel any different than not having it on my back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was like for the first time I actually felt the load uh, in a long time. That's amazing. Really cool. Uh, well, Alex, thank you again so much for your time. Between these these two uh, separate uh, interview dates, I think there's just so much valuable information here for folks. Um, do you have anything coming up or do, does do you have anything coming up through Accelerate or through RP that would be helpful for people to know about or, or where people could perhaps best find you? Uh, like I will put, we'll tag your Instagram, but, and you're not doing any more of your power tricks anymore, but people just, <laughs> they can scroll down not too far and see some of the yeah. most impressive athletic things that, that they've probably ever seen. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I do have a, um, a series of endurance training programs that are being released through Renaissance periodization and they're available on our website. Uh, it's one of those. It's very good. Oh, awesome. That's, that's wonderful. So, um, yeah, so we've got 5k, 10k, uh, marathons coming out in September, uh, half marathon coming out in November and then all of 2019, I'll be be releasing sprint triathlon, Olympic distance triathlon, 70.3 and 140.6. Ah, really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Alex, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it.